Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Revelation 19, verses 6 and 7. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah. <laughs> For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Mother Teresa spent her life caring for the untouchables, a class within India's caste system whose name speaks for itself. And after years of solo work in obscurity in 1950, the Catholic Church gave her permission to establish the Missionaries of Charity, a new religious order founded within the slums of Calcutta. Her primary goal was not first and foremost to better the lives of the poor or alleviate the suffering of the sick or even to save the lives of the dying. All of those happened, but her primary aim was always to recover the image of God in the people that she served. And among those she served were the leprous. Leprosy is, of course, a skin disease, but it is one that particularly targets the extremities. Most lepers lose fingers and toes first. Later, often they lose whole hands and feet. Faces are typically disfigured as well. Many lepers losing their nose or ears slowly to the disease over time. And these are suffering people that Jesus spent a lot of time with. And these are people who need an embodied spirituality. An abstract spirituality that touches the soul and the mind while ignoring the body is an insult to those who are suffering in the body. Mother Teresa opened every day in prayer, and after gazing into the face of Jesus in the quiet of the early morning, she would go to recognize the face of Jesus in the common faces of her neighbors, responding to them in kind. And if all she believed was a spirituality of biblical truth and prayerful reflection in the soul's final resting place, she'd have stopped her prayer with morning reflection. Thank God Mother Teresa spoke and lived her prayers. Thank God Mother Teresa had an embodied spirituality. You know, we love the concept of something that's holistic. Holistic is in, it's hot right now, right? Holistic medicine, holistic wellness, holistic spirituality. Finally, a church doing a teaching series on the whole person, soul, mind, and body. It's about time. Uh, you're late to the party, but we are glad that you showed up after all. We love a holistic take so long as the holistic stays distant and abstract. But what about when a holistic spirituality joins my body to the sins of my generational ancestors? Are you trying to say that I have a responsibility in a story I didn't write or choose? 
Or what about when an embodied spirituality says something about my pregnancy or my gender identity or my eating and drinking? Whoa, 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 I thought we were just here to talk about spiritual matters. See, we love a holistic take so long as the holistic stays uh, distant and abstract, so long as it benefits me without restricting me, so long as it doesn't make any claim on me. But when an embodied spirituality comes down from the abstract and into the real, when it gets close, as close as my city and my neighbors and my body, well, there's the rub, isn't it? But a holistic spirituality that doesn't come close enough to confront us is also a spirituality that does not come close enough to heal us. You do not get Mother Teresa's Calcutta out of holistic ideas. If you want a kingdom that becomes real, real enough to touch and be touched by, real enough to heal and be healed by, then you must also accept a kingdom that is real enough to confront and be confronted by. God and the whole person, soul, mind, and body in his image. Today is the conclusion to a teaching series and practice that we have been in throughout the Lenten uh, season, and today's teaching is a sequel. So last Sunday, we covered the biblical arc, uh, discovering and naming this one simple truth, that the way of Jesus is an embodied spirituality. And we ended with, yeah, but... Right, we end it with all the sticky questions that an embodied spirituality leaves us with when it gets close enough to heal and close enough to confront. And if you missed part one, you're going to feel like you're missing the foundation because you are. So you'll need to go back and pick up that essential piece through our podcast. And if you were around last week, you should know that I'm going to pick up exactly where I left off. But before we go any further, I do just want to note that I'm aware that for some to be in this room today is an act of extraordinary courage. That as a teacher, I'm aware of the fragility that some of us bring to the topic of, the spirit, of spirituality and the body. Be that fragility rooted in body image, eating disorder, sexuality, or something else. The pain and shame and even anger that comes through the body is some of the deepest and most potent that we ever feel. And as a follower of Jesus, I'm aware of my own brokenness. I'm acutely aware of the brokenness that lives in my body and gets expressed through my body. And so I'm aware of the deep longing for healing that many of us bring to a topic like this one. And as a pastor, I'm aware of the pain that the church has caused to many when it comes to their bodies. Sometimes because of what has been said and other times because of silence of what's not been said or what's been ignored. And so as a church leader, when I say we're going to delve deeper next Sunday into spirituality and our bodies, I'm aware that some are intrigued and eager to learn, and others are triggered and a guard shoots up, and some are wincing, bracing for impact at what I might say or what I might ignore. I'm aware that behind every face that I'm looking at right now lives a unique blend of curiosity and anxiety and fear. And so I just want to say, as your pastor... I'm aware, and I love you, and I am not confident that I can offer a biblical teaching over the next 40 minutes that is going to unwind the complexity of the way of Jesus and the unique story that you are living in your body. 
I am confident that we have a magnificent Savior who can empathize with our weaknesses, who is so full of empathy that he has wept and will weep beside you, who is so full of redeeming power that he will not stop until every last aspect of your life and mine is ushered into life and life to the full and life everlasting, and who is worth trusting with your whole being, your soul, mind, and body. It's Jesus I'm confident in, not me. And it's Jesus I'm pointing you toward, not to teaching, not to ideas, and certainly not to me. And so this community is a safe one to bring your whole self to, because we are committed to knowing you and honoring your story and pointing you to the wounded healer with power to save. So with that being said, here's where we're headed this morning. The way of Jesus is an embodied spirituality, part two. So we're going to take a tour through the whole of Scripture along the exact same lines that we did last week, making the same stops along the way. Embodied blessing, embodied curse, embodied redemption, embodied victory, embodied resurrection, and then embodied blessing again. We'll follow an identical map to last Sunday, this time making different observations along the way. You guys ready? I hope so, because here we go. All right, embodied blessing. The image of God planted within man and woman about creation is most obvious in our seeing. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, says Genesis 2.25. Those are the final words of Genesis before the serpent shows up weaving a lie. Adam and Eve saw with wonder and awe. They saw the image of God behind every aspect of creation. They saw one another uh, through eyes that, that were pure in love. They saw themselves without a drop of insecurity. They saw God as a welcome presence. Human relationship was first full of God, and it was free of lust. Adam and Eve possessed eros. They had erotic desire. They were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. They had sex drives. But even human sexuality at the very beginning was an expression of the pure desire not to possess another, but to love another as God loves. Part two, embodied curse. I'll pick up in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Eve saw. She saw for the first time in human history, not through the lens of God's blessing, but through the lens of the serpent's lie. She saw not through eyes of love, but through eyes of lust. Lust is desiring any created thing as an end in itself, not as a window to see God. So lust, lust isn't first about sex, it's about sight. It's about the destructive actions that emerge from distorted vision. Eve saw the tree, but this time she didn't see the image of the creator through that tree. She desired the tree's fruit as an end in itself. And when she, and Adam was right there with her, acted on that lust, all hell broke loose. Then the eyes of both of them were naked and or were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Sin is a distortion of vision, resulting in destructive action. As Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eyes are unhealthy, 
Your whole body will be full of darkness. Part three, embodied redemption. You know, the, the song that's stuck in my head most frequently right now is Anti-Hero by Taylor Swift. I don't even particularly care for her music, to be honest, but it's lodged in my head because my four-year-old Simon sings it all the time. But he thinks it goes, it's me, Cy, I'm the problem, it's me. Once he even asked me if she said Cy or Ty because he was wondering which of us the song was about. Anyway, this song gets stuck in my head because the, the chorus is so catchy. The verses, though, bizarre. I still remember the first time I heard it. I'm kind of feeling it. And then all of a sudden, sometimes I feel like everybody is a sexy baby and I'm a monster on the hill. What? But then the chorus hits again and I'm right back there with her. And then she's all, I have this dream, my daughter-in-law kills me for the money. She thinks I left them in the will. What? Taylor, what is this song about? The chorus, so catchy. The verses, bizarre. And that Taylor Swift song, that's kind of like reading most of the Hebrew Bible. Right? Because there is this catchy chorus that just keeps you hooked. But the, I mean, there's some bits that you'll read, and without a robust understanding of the cultural context and the place in the narrative, you're scratching your head wondering if anyone else is hearing what you're hearing. And of course, just as a disclaimer, this analogy breaks down at some point because I believe that the Bible is the most beautiful story ever written. It speaks profoundly to the story written to the human soul. And usually the head-scratching bits turn out to be the best parts in the end, but you see what I'm saying, right? <laughs> The catchy chorus of the Hebrew Bible, meaning the refrain that the narrative keeps returning to, comes in two parts, infidelity and union. The most frequent depiction of sin in the whole of the Old Testament is the analogy of marital infidelity, the infidelity of Israel to God, of the bride to the bridegroom. But then there's this promised solution, a person, a bridegroom, who is unquenchably loving and inexhaustibly faithful even in the midst of the bride's infidelity. That's most prominently depicted uh, through the prophet Hosea's marriage to the prostitute Gomer, but it's also peppered throughout the Old Testament. A bridegroom is coming whose love is stronger than our infidelity. All to say the primary imagery used in the Hebrew Bible to explain the human condition is embodied, sexual, and ultimately about a love that overcomes lust. It is profoundly human and profoundly good. Whew. That was the whole of the Old Testament. Let's pause here for a brief intermission before we continue. Can we get some house music, please? Do you remember this song? The Postal Service? Ben Gibbard's wildly popular side project from Death Cab for Cutie. You know, they're doing a reunion tour this summer. <laughs> and that means that in arenas all over the globe, Ben Gibbard will sing and crowds will sing with him the lyrics to their hit song, and I have to speculate that God himself did make us into corresponding shapes like puzzle pieces from the clay. 
It's indie rock poetry about God's creation of us as male and female. Can you imagine those lyrics in a pop song today? And pop music does not sound like that anymore. It's only been 20 years since that album dropped. In just a couple of decades, words like these went from poetry accepted by the masses to narrow, exclusive, offensive, and even dangerous. All to say we are living through a historic cultural shift. Whatever you make of it, there is no denying that cultural norms have changed and changed profoundly and changed quickly. The biblical script is that the core problem is the infidelity of the bride, that's us, and the solution to that problem is the fidelity of the bridegroom, that's Jesus. Our cultural script says the core problem is infidelity to the self. The core problem is the human con- in the human condition is the struggle to be true to yourself. And so the human journey is then to discover myself and live as that self in the real world. And the definition of myself comes from my inner desire, from how I feel. Therefore, the core solution is be true to your authentic self through the free, uninhibited expression of your desire. And the free expression of my desire is a human right. It's a matter of justice and injustice. So the cultural script, and when I say the cultural script, I should clarify that I'm talking about the Portland cultural script, which for whatever it's worth is is very new in human history, meaning it's young, and it is almost entirely Western, meaning it's predominantly white. The, The cultural script of the Southern half of the world is quite different from the one that I'm describing. But the Portland cultural script redefines salvation as self-actualization, redefines identity by desire, and therefore defines the body as a tool for the expression of that identified desire. The question, and I'm genuinely not trying to put words in anyone's mouth here, I just think that this is worth some honest reflection. The question is, is that story true? And then, of course, there's a subsequent question. Is the story I'm living the true story? I've got no doubt that the story that you're living is sincere, but it's truth, not sincerity, that frees us. Is the story I'm living the true story? The biblical understanding is that with our bodies, we tell a story. We tell a true or a false story because this has everything to do with that. Remember? Lust acted upon is telling a lie with your body. It's the Craigslist scam artist selling you something that he knows is flimsy and then shaking your hand as he completes the deal. Isn't he lying with his body? It's Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane, not saying a word out loud, but kissing Jesus to identify the one that they should arrest. Isn't he telling a lie with his body? The serpent in the garden is bent on getting us to tell his story with our bodies, but his story is a deception. It is a scam. It is a lie. Is the story I'm living the true story? That's a question worth holding as we journey into the life of Jesus. This brings us to embodied victory. Now, pretty early on in his ministry, Jesus openly uh, shared a number of ethical teachings related to the body, things like Matthew chapter 5. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So lust is not only what happened when people believed a lie. According to Jesus, lust is what happens when we believe a lie. Lust, remember, is desiring any created thing as an end in itself, not as a window to see God. And that means that lust is about sex, but it's also about a whole lot more than sex. We lust after a person's body as a vessel for pleasure without thought of the imago Dei that is within them and the creator who knit them fearfully and wonderfully together. But we also lust after the warm escape of a glass of wine in the evening, not seeking the rest that we want from God. And we lust after another item in our already overstuffed closets to cloak our desirability rather than take that desirability to God who clothes the wildflowers. You see, love came from God lust from the serpent. In Jesus' ethical teachings, they're not about rightly aligned behavior, they're about rightly aligned love. They're about the inner order of our love that then gives birth to the sort of action that leads to life. And of all the theological debates and hot topic conversations around the body and the church these days, one thing that isn't really disputed in any reputable way is that Jesus taught a very narrow sexual ethic. One man, one woman within a marriage covenant. That is the biblical sexual ethic. And Jesus taught and affirmed that same ethic as one of many pictures that we have in our world that points to the grand story of heaven and earth being united as one. But you got to remember, Jesus was a whole lot more than just a moral teacher. He's a redeemer with power to save and a great high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses. And there may be no place in the human psyche that shame so easily takes up residence than when it comes to our sexuality. We are sexually broken. Every last one of us has had our bodily desires misdirected. The community leader who can lead the group like a pro but still struggles with the pornography habit in secret. The happily married mother of three delighting a little bit too much in the attention of a male coworker the confused teenager who cannot make sense of the attraction that he feels to his best friend, the middle-aged divorcee wondering what Jesus had in mind with someone in her state of loneliness and longing, the dating couple who sleep together frequently, conveniently assuming that Jesus would have updated the Sermon on the Mount if he had lived at this time in history, the married couple whose sex life remains colored today by unnamed sexual brokenness in the past, and the pastor teaching on an embodied spirituality. We are all sexually broken. Every last one of us has had our bodily desires misdirected. And for many of us, our sexuality is a source of shame. It's so intimate, the place we are most prone to hide our brokenness, to put on fig leaves in front of one another and to duck behind the brush, hiding from God. And then to make matters worse, in the church, we tend to have the least grace for the areas of sins we're least likely to commit. Right? The American church of my lifetime has had loads of grace for gossip. Tons of grace for greed. This church has grace for drunkenness, grace for disobeying your father and mother, uh, grace for slander so long as it's about your boss or coworker who isn't present. But generally speaking, we tend to have very little grace for the sexual brokenness we've never struggled with and are likely to never struggle with. Thankfully, 
Jesus is not like us. He's a redeemer with power to save and a great high priest who can empathize with our weaknesses. So what does Jesus, an empathetic redeemer, offer us to deal with our misdirected bodily desires? Well, last Sunday, we noted that Jesus answers questions about the body by pointing to the past and to the future, right? He points back to Eden before sin's corruption. He points forward to the garden city after sin's eradication. And in the middle, he painted a picture of that promised future, a wedding feast. And that picture, it's one that Jesus brought to life, one that he left with us, one he told us to relive again and again as we await his return. Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Now, you may recognize this as the opening line to Jesus' last meal with his disciples, known today as Passover, the Last Supper, the Eucharist, or communion. At this table, Jesus is gathering up the whole story, and he's pointing ahead to where it's going, because redemption has a chorus. An unfaithful bride, yes, but a faithful bridegroom coming after that unfaithful lover to renew the vows. Jesus is that bridegroom. And Jesus' sacrifice, his broken body and shed blood represented on this table is the dowry. It is the price for reunion. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus has eagerly desired to sit at this table with his disciples because this feast is iconic. It is a sacrament. It is a visible picture of an invisible reality. And if Jesus eagerly desired to sit at that earthly feast, which is merely a picture pointing to the feast that is to come, how strong must his desire be to sit at that forever table across from you? I mean, if you eagerly desire to look at a postcard of a Hawaiian beach during a long gray Portland winter, how strong is your desire to actually be there, to put your feet in that sand and be kissed by that sun and hear those waves and sip those Mai Tais, right? For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink from it again, or I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus intends to fast after this meal. He's really upfront about that. He intends to cultivate an appetite for that promised wedding feast. He says that he won't touch the fruit of the vine again. Wine's not going to cross this palate until we share it together in the table that we'll never stop feasting at. By fasting, Jesus is directing his desire toward that forever table. And that's what fasting is. It isn't giving something up to show God that you really mean it this time. It's resisting a good but lesser appetite to acquire a taste for the table that satisfies. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the very same breath, Jesus says that each time that you and I do eat of the bread and drink of the wine, we should remember that promised feast that's coming. In other words, every taste of satisfaction you get in this life, a temporary kind of satisfaction that will take away your hunger for a moment, but it's sure to come back again, a satisfaction that cannot and will not fulfill your appetite. Each time you get a taste of that, let it fine-tune your taste buds and direct your desire to the only one who can consummate your desire and to the only feast that will never end. By feasting, Jesus gives us a picture to look forward to, to anticipate and desire, and that's what feasting is. 
It isn't overindulging just this once because you earned it. It's tasting something good, not as an end in itself, but as an experience of the promised feast that's coming. It's a way to acquire a taste for the only table that satisfies. You see, at an event as central as the Last Supper, Jesus shows us that fasting and feasting, our bodily desires deferred and our bodily desires gratified, are both iconic. They are sacramental. They are visible expressions of an invisible reality. Ours is an embodied spirituality, and that means what we do with our bodies, our eating and drinking, our working and resting, our laughing and talking, All of it is meant to point to Jesus' table. And it means that what we don't do with our bodies, the hunger that we don't satisfy and the drink that we pass on, the ways our work doesn't fulfill us and our bodies ultimately break down, the tears we shed, the companion we never meet, the sexual urges that we resist, all of that is meant to point toward Jesus' table. And he punctuates the meal with this statement. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Jesus shares his kingdom with us so that he can share his table with us. That's how essential this image was to Jesus. It's how great this wedding feast is to Jesus. It's how eagerly he wants us to desire his feast. And if your vision is that great feast, it redefines your body with all of its desires and cravings, not as a tool for pleasure, but as a vessel for worship, a way to aim the totality of my being at his table where the totality of my being will be satisfied and fulfilled. So what's Jesus the empathetic redeemer, given us to do with our bodily desires, a table, a table set with a feast to eagerly desire to point all of that bodily desire toward, to desire enough that every moment of bodily pleasure and every moment of bodily desire we defer, all of it points to the one table where we'd be fully and finally satisfied. You see, that's where a satisfying work day and an evening out with a significant other and the clink of glasses between friends, sex between a husband and wife, and the endorphin rush after a jog on a sunny Saturday morning and Al Pastor tacos all point (laughs) to Jesus' table. And that's where a job that does not fulfill me but does help ends meet and a life of vocational celibacy, and a life of unwanted singleness, and sexual abstinence, and being limited by sickness or injury, and saying no thanks to tacos on the day of my fast, all points to Jesus' table. See, what I'm trying to make plain, and what Jesus told us in the most personal of language on his final night is this, feasting and fasting are both about acquired taste about acquiring a taste for the only feast that can and will satisfy. The way that we live fullest is not through the unrestrained gratification of all of our bodily desire, and it's not through the legalistic renunciation of all of our bodily desire, but by the proper redirecting of all of our bodily desire. Jesus gave us a table set with a feast to eagerly desire, to point all of our good bodily desire toward Part five, embodied resurrection. You know, that table, 
It's both a picture that brings us to our knees in wonder, and it's a tough pill to swallow, if we're being honest. Because sure, life is short when it's measured against eternity, but life is long when it's all I've ever known, and I only get one of them. So fasting from sugar during Lent is one thing, because I know that Easter feasting is 40 days downstream, but fasting from a core human desire for 40 years or more? Yeah, I don't care how poetic your language is, man. I'm going to need some more help with that one. And that's why Jesus left us with more than just a picture, but with his very spirit. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? We read this last week, remember? But if we zoom out and see it in its fuller context, it's illuminating. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, this promise it falls right in the midst of a passage making the case that what we do with our bodies affects our souls. When we direct our bodily desires toward Jesus' table, when we use our bodies to love, serve, and worship, our souls are enlivened and expanded by those actions. But when we try to feast apart from Jesus' table, when we use our bodies in pursuit of disordered desires, our souls are suffocated and shriveled by those actions. The cultural script says that free expression of bodily desire without care for the soul is the pathway to life. The cultural script separates the body and the soul into completely different categories. And we have a word for the separation of the body and the soul. Death. The Apostle Paul makes the case that there is no such thing as bodily gratification that does not affect the soul. In this case, his example is, is sex in pursuit of pleasure, but that same principle holds if you apply it to any other form of lust, desiring any created thing as an end in itself. Lust acted upon strangles the soul. In the words of Dallas Willard, and I hope you're listening, John Mark Comer. In the words of Dallas Willard, the vitality and power of Christianity is lost when we fail to integrate our bodies into its practice by intelligent, conscious choice and steadfast intent. It is with our bodies we receive the new life that comes as we enter his kingdom. Life is experienced in the soul, mind, and body. The life and the life to the full that Jesus promised, therefore, involves the beliefs and practices by which we nourish the soul, the thoughts that we think in the mind, and what we do with our bodies. The cultural ethic is desire and consent. If I desire this and it does not directly and immediately harm another person, then go for it. The Jesus ethic is more bound than that. Jesus defines the containers within which our bodily desires can and should be freely expressed. And the real test of any ethical teaching isn't how it sounds when you hear it, it's how it feels when you live it. So where is our city's cultural ethic taking those who are living by it? And what about Jesus's? Or where is our city's cultural body ethic taking you when you live by it? And how does it feel to be taken there? Do you like who it's making you along the way? And what about Jesus's? 
And again, I'm not saying that in a way that's attempting to lead you or put words in your mouth. I'm simply saying these are questions worth deep, honest reflection. Jesus is an ethical teacher. The question is, are the boundaries of Jesus about legalism or liberation? Do they lead to life like he said they did? Or do they lead to death? G.K. Chesterton wrestled really hard with questions like those, and he came to this conclusion. And the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. I want to pause here for just a moment. Because for some, I imagine hearts will be racing. For others, minds will be racing. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Romans 5 says, you pour the love of God into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you come? We need you to be the translator, the comforter, the counselor between the teaching of Jesus to us and that's intersection with my story, my life my wrestle. We need your help. Holy Spirit, would you come? The voice of Jesus speaks to this again near the end of the story. The very last book of the Bible, Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. It's a vision from the Apostle John in which Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches. So I want to read to you from two of those letters, the letter to Pergamum and the letter to Thyatira, two very real churches in very real cities in the Greco-Roman world. So what I'm about to read to you is the voice of Jesus speaking to the church when it comes to the spirituality of the body. First, the letter to Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, there were some encouraging bits before this, just so you know. Jesus was entirely a downer in his letter. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, the English sexual immorality is the Greek porneia, from which we get the English pornography, and it's used in throughout the New Testament to refer to any sexual expression outside of one man, one woman within a marriage covenant. Then there's the letter to Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality, porneia, and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So Jesus is singling out two sins that are creeping in on the church and emptying the church of life and power. Eating whatever you want, and having sex with whoever you want. Jesus is writing to the church, and he's saying, this is in the water, and I need you to wake up. Hang on. Why are these two such a big deal? Well, back in Acts chapter 15, the early church leaders held this major council in Jerusalem because the church started as a sect within Judaism, but now Gentiles are coming to faith in Jesus. And they didn't grow up under the Jewish law, meaning the calendar and eating kosher and circumcision and all that kind of stuff. So do we require Gentiles to take on the Jewish law in order to continue to follow Jesus? That was the big question. And here was their conclusion. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality, porneia. 
you will do well to avoid these things. Now, why are these two such a big deal? I mean, what's happening with food and sex? Well, let's start with food. The logic was food forms family and food facilitates worship. Food was the symbolic practice Jesus gave to bind us together as his family. That's why we commonly call the Lord's table communion, because that is where we commune with one another as family under one father. But the breaking of of bread that Jesus gave us was more, it was about more than just communion with one another. It's also the place where we commune with Jesus, where we remember him. In fact, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he singles out the eating of food sacrificed to idols as participation in the worship of those idols. So in the biblical imagination, eating food is such a personal and intimate act that it has the power to both form family and facilitate worship. So when you come to the table, whether it's in a formal church setting to dip a really, really strange cracker into a cup of grape juice, or if it's informally around a flimsy Ikea table with friends to, to share takeout, you are engaging in an act of family and worship. Who are you unifying? Who are you worshiping? Now let's move to sex. The logic is identical. Sex forms family. And sex facilitates worship. Sex forms family. I'm just going to assume that that's understood and no charts and diagrams will be necessary (laughs) to explain the way that works. But also sex facilitates worship. Back to 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them to a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. So whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's family language. It's union language. He goes on to write what we've already read. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Your body is a temple. Your body is a site of worship who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So sex is an act of union and worship. The question is, who are you unifying? Who are you worshiping? You see, what I'm trying to show you is that what you do with your body, what you eat and drink, who you have sex with, what you do with your body is directly connected to your spiritual life. Lust is gluttony. Uh, when food is not used for nourishment but for escape, when we seek through indulgence something we're designed to get only from God. And lust is porneia, when sex is not connected to the God of life and love but sought for pleasure throughout or outside of the ethical boundaries of Jesus, when we seek through indulgence something that we're designed to get from God. Uh, The churches at Pergamum and Thyatira, they were gathering regularly for worship. They were meeting in homes. They were championing the way of Jesus. But when it came to food and sex, they were mostly doing what they wanted. And it was emptying those communities of life and power. You do not get Mother Teresa's Calcutta out of holistic ideas. If you want a kingdom that becomes real, real enough to touch and be touched by, real enough to heal and be healed by, then you have to accept a kingdom that becomes real enough to confront and be confronted by. So to return to our question, is the story I'm living the true story? Can I ask it a little bit more directly? 
The question is, are we going to use biblical thinking to deconstruct a secular understanding of the body? Or are we going to use secular thinking to deconstruct a biblical understanding of the body? And can I just say that right now in the Western church, we are doing a phenomenal job of the latter. The question is, is anyone going to have the courage to attempt the former? And embodied spirituality is rooted in trust. Trust that God is the creator of my desire, longs to fulfill my desire, and is the only one who knows how. Trust that the ethical boundaries of Jesus are the walls of a playground where the good things he's placed in me get to run wild. Now, how, how high are the stakes here? Just the quality of your spiritual life and power. As I said before, in the church, we tend to have the least grace for the areas of sin we're least likely to commit. And it's equally true that in the church, we tend to ignore the sins that are most socially celebrated in our time. That's always been true from the first days until now. And that matters, not because God is a moral policeman. He is the furthest thing from that. It matters because sin empties the church of life and power. You see, biblically speaking, there is a direct line between the use of our bodies, between our eating and drinking and our sexual expression and the experience quality of our spiritual lives and the power of the kingdom of God in our city. So I'm going to pause again for just a moment here. Because for some, this will be hard to hear. And for others, you'll just need a moment so let it settle. You know, in the midst of writing this teaching, I took a, a lift ride to work one morning, and I noticed all these children's stickers on the back seat of one of the windows. And so I struck up a conversation with the driver, Quintana, and asked him, hey man, you got any kids? And it turned out that he had three children, almost identical in age to my three children. He's an Ethiop Ethiopian immigrant who won the immigration lottery and moved to the U.S. 12 years ago. He did not know how to speak a word of English or navigate any of the systems of this country. He was literally dropped off and then left to find his way. And after he finished sharing his story with me, I said, I cannot imagine. I've never done anything that difficult in my life. And then I got to speak a word of blessing over his journey and over each of the members of his family, and then I stepped out. Now, I'm aware that for some in the room, this biblical teaching will be hard to hear. Because among us today, there are widows and widowers who have held children next to the grave of the man or woman they love. There are abuse survivors for whom sexual expression, a good thing that God created, has become feared, painful, and avoid it. There are men and women wrestling with Jesus and their sexuality, asking what all this means for me, for the unique desire that I feel, or the unique alienation I feel from my own body. There's men and women living as celibates, pointing all of their sexuality to Jesus, living in a way that is prophetic to the rest of us. There are single men and women whose lives simply haven't played out the way that they always imagined. And the great pain isn't something that's happened. It's something that so far at least hasn't happened. 
And there are many dealing with a pornography addiction and carrying some behavioral pattern that they hide from those around them, that they hide behind fig leaves in front of their brothers and sisters and hide away in the brush from God. So I get out of this car after talking to Quintana and I began to pray, Jesus, I have no idea what his life would feel like. I've never done anything that difficult in my life. And I have no idea what your story feels like. But Jesus was born to the peasant class of an oppressed people group during a genocide. And he left home and lived in a foreign place and learned to navigate a culture with all of its systems. And he did all of that without a cent to his name. So I might never have been through anything like Quintana's immigration story, but for the immigrant, the refugee, the oppressed, for Quintana, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And my embodied story might be very different than yours. I may have no experiential knowledge with what your story feels like or what it would feel like to carry what you carry. But Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he looked at Mary, his mother, who had lost her husband somewhere along the way and now was losing her firstborn son. And in a moment of unimaginable agony that he was feeling on himself, he told John to take care of his mom. He was moved in empathetic compassion for his widowed mother in the moment of his own suffering. So for the widowed, I've never been through anything as difficult as what you've been through. And for the widowed, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. Jesus was the victim of incessant abuse. He was driven to Egypt as a kid. He was publicly assaulted with attempts of shame by those in power as an adult. He was physically abused, stripped naked in public, victimized on his last day as he prayed for his abuser's forgiveness for the victim. Jesus is a sufficient savior. Jesus was a single celibate man. He lived his whole life with a sex drive and every other human impulse, and he lived his whole life apart from the butterflies of romantic love or sexual gratification. He died a single celibate man, and then he called all of his days life and life to the full. So for the single, the celibate, the wrestling, Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And Jesus saw the worst in every last one of his disciples. All along, it was them that were creating false selves made of strength rather than weakness. And then when their shame was finally exposed, Jesus went and he found every last one of them to say, in essence, I've always known and I still choose you. And it's this, your coming out of hiding that begins your long journey toward transformation. So for the ashamed, Jesus is a sufficient savior. So I want to say to you as your pastor, it's possible that I can't relate. It's quite possible that I will never know what it feels like to carry the way of Jesus the way that you carry the way of Jesus. Thank you, God, for taking on a body. Thank you, God, for becoming a great high priest who can empathize. Thank you, God, for Jesus, a sufficient Savior. So here's where we'll land today, because I'm out of time. Part six, embodied blessing Again, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, 
For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. See, we land today exactly where we landed a week ago at the forever wedding feast. The Catholic theologian Christopher West, he says that most people tend to live their embodied lives one of two ways, by a starvation diet or a fast food diet. Right, there's starvation, like repress your desire, wage war against yourself, life is a struggle against delight. But that doesn't work. Most of us can't hack it, and even those of us who can, that's a far cry from life and life to the full. And at the other end of the spectrum is fast food. Gratify your desire, satiate yourself. Life is an unrestricted pleasure pursuit, but that doesn't work either. I mean, as psychologist Victor Frankl observed, the pursuit of pleasure as an end in itself somehow never ends in pleasure. So I want to suggest a third way to live an embodied spirituality and to live it to the full, acquired taste. The greatest delicacies in this life, they all involve acquired taste, right? Coffee, wine, caviar, I hear, aged cheese. Uh, All of the world's universal delicacies are things we have to acquire a taste for. The greatest pleasures in this life are acquired tastes. Jesus, living in a human body, riddled with desire, just like mine and yours, he said a wedding feast is coming, and it's a feast worth acquiring a taste for. So don't starve yourself. Don't eliminate all desire. Redirect your desire. Point it at this table. And it's a feast worth waiting for, so don't spoil your appetite on the way. I mean, no one picks up McDonald's on the way to a Michelin star chef's tasting. This is a wedding feast worth acquiring a taste for. So let your life with its unique blend of fasting and feasting all point at his table. In the words of Jackie Hill Perry, this love is what will help us persevere. A love that sees knowing God as the body's greatest pleasure. And so our practice this week, it's not new. We've been talking about it church-wide during Lent and delving deeper midweek in our Bridgetown communities. Our practice this week is fasting. And fasting is training the muscle of waiting. It is deferring a craving for fast food because I'm on my way to a feast where the courses never stop coming. Fasting is about acquiring a taste for that table that satisfies. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, says Hebrews 12. You are the joy set before him. For Jesus, union with you made the cross worth enduring. The scandalous claim of the Bible is that the one who hung the stars and filled the seas says you are joy worth suffering for. And the one thing that we all do have in common when it comes to our embodied spirituality is this. Jesus, he is the joy set before you. Jesus and only Jesus can satisfy you. Life to the full, if you want the definition of it, is the direction of all of my love. The love that I'm sharing right now with a spouse or with friends or with children and the love that I am not sharing right now, the desires within me that I'm deferring and I'm waiting on him for, it's the direction of all of that love within me to Jesus. And the great struggle of the spiritual life is not the taming of my desire, it is the directing of all of my wild desire in all of its fullness to Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in a field. So sell everything 
and buy that field. Union with Jesus is coming. It's coming in part right now, and it's coming in fullness in his return. So let the bride make herself ready.